together. Genesis 34, stand if you are able. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are, by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised, as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate... Of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and Whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. And then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, 
And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Shakespeare's uh, tragedies are the gold standard of English literature. Uh, if any, any half-decent English program will have you read Shakespeare uh, during the course of middle and high school. You, you will read, you better read, you should read um, Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, Macbeth at some point during the course of your education. Shakespeare is just considered sort of the gold standard of English literature. This chapter rivals Shakespeare. It's shorter and it lacks soliloquies. Other than that, it's just like something you would read straight out of Shakespeare. Shakespeare may be an inspiring writer. Moses, as he writes this, is actually inspired by the Holy Spirit and writes God's Word. Shakespeare wrote fictional stories about fictional characters. Moses is writing real history real events about real people that ends in a very real tragedy. As we look at this chapter, I want to approach it not scene by scene, but person by person. We'll examine the chapter basically by by looking at the individuals involved rather than taking it sort of scene by scene. Notice in verse 2, there's this guy, Shechem. Uh, you, You get a pretty clear picture of what drives Shechem. He reminds me a little bit of Jean Ralphio in Parks and Rec. He's spoiled. He can't do anything wrong. His dad thinks he's the greatest thing ever. He never, never accepts any kind of blame for anything at all. And even when he does do something wrong, he just pretends it never actually even happened. Everything seems to be handed to him on a silver platter. I mean, for that matter, what city are they in? The city is called Shechem. Wait, wait, wait. That's his name. The city's named after him. Hamor, his dad, is like the prince of the land. And so they're living in a city named for his son. If that doesn't prove wealth and influence, I don't know what does. That's, that's, that's what Shechem has grown up with. Everything comes to him simply because he wants it. And so in verse 2, he sees... Dinah. And the language of verse 2, when Shechem saw her, seized her, lay with her, humiliated her. There's no way to describe it other than rape. There's nothing else you can call it. He rapes Dinah. There's no, there's no evidence of it being consensual, there's no evidence of her saying, oh no, I really liked him too. All you get of Dinah is verse 1, verse 2, and basically the last verse. There's no evidence that she participated or engaged in this willingly at all. The language, it's, it's took her, it's forceful, it's, it's that kind of language. Shechem who thinks that simply because he wants it, he should have it, takes her and rapes her. 
But then you get verse 3. Then you get almost the exact opposite. Because in, in verse 3, after the event, after the fact, his desire for her doesn't change. Now there are other accounts in Scripture where someone rapes somebody and at that point they're, they're done. They don't need her anymore. They're through with her. They throw her away. Here, it doesn't change his, his heart or his attitude. But notice the language of verse 3. He's drawn to her. He uh, speaks tenderly to her and loves her. You get the sense that he's pretending like he never did anything wrong. So he, he rapes Dinah and then whispers sweet nothings in her ear like, like everything's normal and right and, and as it should be. And you notice, verse 26, he actually assumed that he would be allowed to marry her because he never actually sent her home. When Simeon and Levi and their brothers come and, and pillage the land, they, take, they kill Hamor and Shechem and they take Dinah from his house, we're told. So he's assumed all along I can have her, I will get her, she will be my wife, and who's going to tell me no? And I didn't do anything wrong at all, I have not violated any rules, I have not violated any person, I haven't done anything wrong. That's the, the appearance, that's Shechem for you in a nutshell. In fact, look in verse 11. He finally says to Jacob, Hamor, his father, speaks. And finally, Shechem speaks up in verse 11. Let me find favor in your eyes. Whatever you say, I'll give it. Name your price. Money is no object. Now, the bride price would have been established by the culture. So there already would have been a set number in Shechem. And he's saying, forget the number. Forget the, the custom. Forget what's common practice. You name your price. Money's no object. I'll pay it. You just have this sense that Shechem is driven by his selfish passions. He's ruled by his own selfish desires. He can have what he wants. He can just simply take it. Nobody's going to tell him no. And having... Having mistreated Dinah the way he did, he never once confesses sin, never once admits the wrong, never once owns up to what he's done to her. You remember, um, I guess it was Hank Williams Jr., family tradition, just carrying on an old family tradition. That's Shechem. Would you believe that's exactly what Shechem is doing? Because if you look back at Genesis chapter 9, there after Noah and his sons uh, come off of the ark, they've established themselves in the land. Noah, has, um, Noah gets drunk, passes out naked, and Ham goes in, uh, Genesis 9 verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the father of Canaan, that's, that's where Jacob is in Genesis 34, 
saw his father's naked. He goes back out and says, hey guys, y'all got to see this. And notice what happens in verse 25. Noah wakes up, he learns what happens, and then you get this. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. And let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Why does Noah call down this curse on Ham and on his son Canaan? It's, it's a form of sexual sin. Shechem's just living out the old family tradition. That's what the Canaanites are known for. So we see this glimpse of Shechem ruled by his selfish passions. Shechem's father, Hamor, isn't, um, isn't much better. It would have been normal for, for Shechem to say to his father, get this girl to me, uh, for me, as, for my wife, and for Shechem to go, I mean for Hamor to go to Jacob and say, let my son uh, marry your daughter. That would have been normal common practice. So we can't, we can't read too much into that. That would have been the way it sort of operated then. That would have been uh, normal practice in those days. But the nerve of Hamor. I mean, hey, my son who just raped your daughter, he kind of wants to marry her now. So what do you say? That going to be okay with you? Why don't you give Dinah to my son Shechem? I mean, that, the gall of Hamor to think never to rebuke his son, never to, to question uh, what Shechem has done. He also pretends that Shechem never did anything wrong. And notice what he promises to Jacob. Let's do this, Hamor says, verse 8. Let's do this. You give your daughter to my son to be his wife. In fact, why don't we do this? Why don't we just go ahead and make a pledge that, that we, our sons will marry your daughters and your sons can marry our daughters and we'll be one big, giant, happy family. He promises, let's be one people. We'll all kind of live and dwell together as one big, happy family. problem is, verse 10, he wants Jacob and his sons to be one of them. Hamor is offering to Jacob, why don't you come and be one of us? You come and, and you can buy land and you can dwell here and you can own property and, and you can basically be one of us. Here's the problem. We just read in Genesis 9 that, that Noah calls for Canaan to serve Shem. And now Canaan is offering to Shem, why don't you come and we'll all live together. Let's all be together. God has promised that the Canaanites are going to lose this land. He promised it to Abraham. He promised it to Isaac. He promised it to Jacob. Even in Genesis 28, when, when Jacob has the, the vision of the latter, in, in verse 13 of Genesis 28, God promises they are going to lose this land. The Canaanites are not going to keep this land forever. 
It's going to be yours. It's going to belong to you, Jacob. It's going to belong to you and to your descendants after you. Why would Jacob enter into a peace treaty with the people who are going to lose the land? This land is going to be his and not the Canaanites. You don't enter into that kind of agreement. You don't make that kind of covenant marriages with the very people who are not going to be there forever. Who are, who are actually going to lose the land itself. There's a, a mini application to be made here, I think. Believers, whenever the world holds out a nice, shiny, delicious, juicy apple for you to take, run. I mean, this is in essence 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things of the world. When, when the world around you holds out some beautiful object and says, look, just come and be like us. Hey, believers, hey, church, hey, kingdom of God, why don't you be more like the world? You should respond with, I'm going to run the other way rather than, that sounds like a great idea. That's in essence what's going on between Hamor and Jacob. Now, I don't know how you sell this agreement that Hamor has made uh, with Jacob's sons. I don't know how you sell that in a city full of Gentiles. Like, I don't know how you go to the city council meeting, which is what he did. He goes to the city gate, verses 20 to 23, Hamor. Uh, the city gate would basically be like going to, to City Hall or going to the, the courthouse on the square. And, and that's where the, the, the rules and decisions and laws of the, the city are made. And Hamor somehow walks up to the city leaders of, of a Gentile nation, Gentile people, and says, you know it would be a great idea if all the males got circumcised. And they bought it. Like, you have to kind of wonder, what was going on? Like, how wealthy and influential is this guy that he can walk up to city council of a Gentile nation and say, we should pass a law that we all have to get circumcised. And they go, okay. And they do it. But that's exactly what happens. But notice the language. Notice how he sells them on it. It's economy. He sells the city, the city leaders, on the economy. Their stuff becomes our stuff. Their beasts will be our beasts. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? We should totally do this because it makes economic sense. We should, we should totally enter into this agreement with them because it's going gonna, it's gonna to go well for us. It's going to be good for us. He never mentions Shechem's desire to marry their daughter, Dinah. He never mentions what Shechem has already done to their daughter, Dinah. He never mentions anything, any kind of personal gain, anything that he 
and his son will gain from this agreement. It's all spun so that just the, the city, city leaders will hear exactly what they want and need to hear. You could, I suppose, insert political jokes here all day long. He only mentions part of the truth. Hamor will say anything he has to say and do whatever he has to do to make sure Shechem gets what he wants. To preserve his own power and influence and to spoil his son. Look at Jacob. In verse 5, Jacob hears about what Shechem has done to Dinah and doesn't do anything about it at all. Now, it's, it's possible that he was, was waiting for his sons to come back from the field. He was kind, maybe he was thinking to himself, I'm by myself and, and I can't really say much because this could get me in trouble. But, his response in verse 30 makes me think he actually was just being passive. Notice at the end, notice in verse 30, notice his big concern at the end of the whole account. So now his daughter has been mistreated by Shechem. His sons have murdered all the men in uh, the city and have taken all of their property. And this is how he responds. You've brought trouble on... Now pay attention to the personal pronouns, would you? Me. By making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed. And finally, he gets a little covenantal. Both I and my household. Up to that point, Jacob is only, only cares about himself. He only cares about his own preservation. He seems to be... He's, you remember the, the Rodney King event? Can't we all just get along? That's Jacob in this passage. Let's just let bygones be bygones. Let's just pretend, you know, water under the bridge and all that sort of stuff. And let's just pretend that never happened. It's peace, but it's passive peace. It's peace even at the expense of truth. He's afraid, in verse 30, of becoming a stench in the nostrils of, of the groups around him, the nations around him. He never condemns Shechem for raping his daughter. He never, as far as we can tell, consoles Dinah for being mistreated. The horrible things that she's had to go through. He never condemns his sons for lying, for entering into a false covenant, for murder, for theft. He only cares about preserving himself. He only cares about his own protection, his own peace, his own preservation. It seems that in verse 5, he perhaps was, was passive. He didn't respond because he held his peace. It's possible, verse 5, because his sons were not there. He didn't have backup. But he always holds his peace in this chapter. When he finally has opportunity to speak, he doesn't. 
when he finally has the opportunity to address wrong, to address immorality, he fails. He lets it go. In fact, you're even left at the end of the chapter thinking that Simeon and Levi are the ones with the high moral ground. Not Jacob, not Hamor, not Shechem. He cares about himself. He's willing to pursue peace even at the expense of his own daughter's honor and virginity. Simeon and Levi and their brothers. Simeon and Levi are are Dinah's full brothers. Uh, There are uh, four other full brothers, sons of, of, of Leah and Jacob. Simeon and Levi take the lead in their retaliation. Isn't there a part of you that at the end of it all, you sort of sympathize with them? I mean, isn't there a part of you that thinks, go get them, I mean, go get them, Levi. Go get them, Simeon. Well done. There's a part of me that wants to cheer for them. But notice, Shechem was carrying on his old family tradition Where do you think Simeon and Levi learned to lie like this? That's what they do to Hamor and to Shechem. They make a promise that they have zero intention of fulfilling. They answered him, verse 13, deceitfully. They knew they were lying. They were plotting their scheme They're quick thinkers. I mean, the the speed with which they came up with this plan, I I would love to know how long this actually took them. So natural, this this conniving, create a plan to lie and deceive and get my way. The way it comes so naturally to them is almost embarrassing. So they, they promised. Well... You know, there's this thing that stands between us and you, and, and, and if you were circumcised like we are, then we really could give you Dinah for a wife. We really could uh, enter into marriage agreements with one another. That's the only thing standing in the way. I mean, if you were willing to do that, then, then, then we would certainly we'd be glad to even. That's their promise. That's the, the assertion they make. That's their lie. But they've taken... God's mark of entrance into the covenant community and profaned it. They've treated it like it's nothing at all. They've treated it like a a mark that really doesn't matter. They've treated it like an unholy thing. They've said, well, we we have no intention of you actually entering into the covenant community. That'd be a different conversation, right? Right? If, if Shechem and Hamor were saying we're going to forsake our people and our family and our religion and we're going to come and, and be a part of, of Jacob and of his family and we're going to serve Yahweh, we're going to serve and love their God and be a part of their people, then you would give them the sign of the covenant. It would be appropriate and right and expected to do that. But that's not their promise at all. They're not trying to bring them into the covenant community. They're using this holy mark in a profane way. It was supposed to be the the right of admittance into Israel. 
And they instead want to use it as a a symbol of death, an instrument of revenge. And notice this revenge they take in verse 25. Verses 25 to 29. Does Shechem's action, does his act demand restitution, punishment, absolutely? Should he be punished for what he did to Dinah? Yes, he should. Would it have been acceptable had Jacob and his son said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? Yes, absolutely. That would have been a normal and right and appropriate punishment to hand out to Shechem. But they went way above and beyond an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. knowing that the men in the city on that third day, they would be, there's no pain medication. They couldn't, they couldn't run to the doctor and get a prescription filled for, for prescription strength, Motrin or whatever, and, and various infection prevention. They, they didn't have access to any of that. They would be weak and tired and their pain would be at its greatest. And so when they were at their weakest, Simeon and Levi, and it appears it's just the two of them, walk through town and kill every single male. Every single man in that city was put to the sword. Imagine, just imagine. You walk in with your sword, you push the weeping wife out of the way to plunge the sword deep into the heart of this ailing, weak man who is absolutely defenseless. Imagine walking by the, their, their children, just weeping and crying and sobbing and shaking and grabbing on to mama. What's going on? Watching his dad is run through with a sword the heartlessness of that retaliation. I mean, punishment handed out on people who had no knowledge or guilt in anything at all. It would have been one thing to to punish Shechem. But to punish the man that lives, you know, five blocks away that has no idea about anything is carrying it way too far. And with that, the other brothers all swoop in like vultures and, and literally they pick the town clean, the way a vulture would pick a carcass clean and leave just the bones. They take money, they take stuff everywhere throughout the whole town. But I want you to notice something. At the end of chapter 34, you almost think for just a second they've gotten away with it. You're thinking, because the, 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 the chapter ends, they actually get the last word. They look at Dad and say, but should we let him treat our sister like a prostitute? At the end of verse chapter 34, you're thinking they have the high moral ground and they're going to get away with it. But I want you to see, turn over to Genesis chapter 49. Because this comes up 
again at the end of Jacob's life. Jacob is on death's door. He gathers his family together and uh, to pronounce blessings on his children. Uh, Genesis chapter 49, look at verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Jacob, years later, remembers back to this event and reminds Simeon and Levi of their wickedness. Truth is, men can do some pretty foolish things, even in the name of honor. Shechem, Hamor, Jacob, Simeon and Levi and their brothers... Surely of everyone in this passage, Dinah is the one lone innocent party. Surely she's the one that you can say, well, if there's anyone above board, if there's anyone honorable, if there's anyone who's, who's done what's right, it's Dinah. I mean, she hasn't done anything wrong. Well, look at verse 1 of chapter 34. How does all of this begin? What's going on in Dinah's heart and mind that led to all of this. Why did she take this walk through the city? She went out to see the women of the land. There's something about these pagan women that intrigues Dinah. There's something about these foreign, godless women that she wants to see more of. There's something about these women in the land, pagan as they are, that has captivated Dinah's attention. Now, the language seems to say there's an admiration, there's a a hunger for, uh, it suggests an envy maybe for their style. There's something about these women that has caught Dinah's eye. And so she left home and went wandering through town so she could see these women. She wanted to go learn from these women or learn about these women. There's something about them that has captivated her attention. Now, custom was that women of marrying age didn't walk around town by themselves. They always had someone with them if they left at all. In fact, the only women of marrying age walking around town by themselves were prostitutes. She communicates something about herself that isn't true because of her desire to know and to see the women of these lands. Now, let me make something clear. Let me, let me, because this matters in 2018 in this climate in light of conversations and discussions that have been going on just in the last week and months, don't hear me saying 
that we hold Dinah responsible for being raped. Don't put those words in my mouth. But there's something about the world around her that has captivated her attention, that put her in a place she should, never should have been in, that put her in a situation she never should have been in. If she'd followed custom, if she'd followed standards, if she'd, now whether Jacob and Leah didn't care, whether they didn't know how she got out of the house, I don't know. Whether she climbed out the window and snuck out, I don't know. But there's something about her that wanted more of her pagan culture. Shechem is guilty for what he did. You can't blame Dinah for that. But you can say to her, had you done what was right, you never would have been in that situation. She shouldn't have been out walking the streets alone. I can't find anyone else in this chapter. If, if you follow the people, if you examine the chapter sort of person by person rather than scene by scene, I think we've used everybody. Shechem, Hamor, Jacob, Simeon and Levi and the other brothers and Dinah, I can find no one else in this passage. Let me make several applications from Genesis 34. First, this chapter is actually one of the reasons we can believe the Bible to be the Word of God. I know that may sound... I, mean, you, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't see that connection. Like, why this chapter? Why does this chapter stand out above others? Why is it that this chapter actually gives further evidence, this isn't the only reason, but further evidence that we can actually believe that the Bible you have is not just a Shakespeare play? Not just written by men. Not that Moses was sitting in some cave somewhere going, well, let me come up with an interesting story to write. That it actually is God's inspired word. How do I know that? Moses is a Levite. Moses, the writer of this chapter, is a Levite. If this is just Moses' words, this chapter isn't in Genesis. You don't write about this kind of heinousness in your own ancestor but that the Holy Spirit was at work writing this through Moses. It's just yet further evidence that this isn't just some man's idea. Some man, Moses, writing what he wants to write. But it actually is God's inspired Word. A second application of this passage um, Jacob and his family, not only had God promised them land, not only had God promised them descendants, not only had God told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your, your descendants will be like, like the stars in the sky. We like to run to that part of the promise. That's, that's the part of the promise you know, we kind of latch on to. But also, part of the promise is that Jacob and his family would be a blessing to the nations around them. Just let me show you real quick. Turn back to, to Genesis chapter 23. Genesis 
Uh, Genesis 23, uh, I wrote down the wrong chapter. Because verse 14 doesn't say that. Well, I wrote down, whatever I wrote down is wrong. The point is, um, it may be 28, 13, but the point is, God has told Jacob, you'll have descendants, you'll have land, oh, kings will come from you, rulers will come from you, and you will be a blessing to the nations around you. Instead, they're being a curse to the nations around them. Instead, they're taking the nation around them and putting them to the sword. That's the opposite of what they're supposed to be doing. The promise that Jacob and his descendants, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants after them would would ultimately be a blessing to the nation doesn't come to fruition until Christ comes. The reality is that we at Grace Covenant should be asking, are we a blessing to the nations around us? Are we a blessing to the city around us? Are we becoming more and more like them? Or are they being blessed because of us? A third application from this passage. This chapter proves that Romans 3.10 is true. That there is no one righteous. Not even one. We went an entire chapter and found not a single person doing what was right in the eyes of God. And if you'll notice, if you'll pay attention, there's, there's someone actually missing in chapter 34. Because God is in the last verse of chapter 33 and the first verse of chapter 35. Chapter 34, He's nowhere mentioned at all. You get a glimpse of, of what life is like when man is left to himself to live as he sees fit according to his own designs. There's no one righteous, not even one. A fourth application. The Bible has one hero. It's not Jacob. It's not Simeon and Levi. It's not David. It's not Abraham. The Bible has one hero. The Bible longs for that one who would prove Romans 3.10 wrong. That there actually is someone, somewhere, who has done what is good, who has done what's righteous, who is in and of himself righteous. The Bible anticipates one who would come and be righteous in our place through whom we might be a blessing to the nations. And this chapter proves that these men, no mere man is the hero of the Bible. That Jesus Christ alone is that hero. And it also proves that any favor we find, any favor Israel finds, after this, because at the end of this chapter, you're sort of thinking, God, you really should smite these people. Let's, that, that would be a good word right there. Smite. That's not a word I use very often, but it seems appropriate in light of this heinousness. Any favor Israel finds in the eyes of God, any favor you and I find in the sight of God, isn't because you've been a blessing. It isn't because you're good. It isn't because you're righteous. It's only by His grace and mercy. If you don't know that favor, run to the cross, there you'll find it. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace and favor we found in Christ and in Him alone. And we pray that you would lead and guide and serve, that we might serve and honor and glorify you in our lives, that we would be a blessing to the nations around us, that we would be messengers of this gospel of hope, this gospel of grace, that we would be the the heralds of the true hero of the Bible, that is, your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.